from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Roger Naiman on February 29, 2016. Roger has had a lifelong interest in the fundamental harmony of science and religion and a focused desire to transcend the worldly conflict that obscure it. He is currently working on a book dedicated to advancing that cause in practical terms. We talk about his work in the context of this Baha'i principle. I started the interview by asking Roger where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? I guess I sort of came of age in Georgia, rural Georgia, and in uh, Southern California. My dad was in the Navy and retired uh, when I was 10 years old. What were your interests growing up? I was very deeply interested in nature. I took solace in exploring the woods, just wandering in thick growth and finding snakes and birds and one time I remember digging deep in some warm, sun-warmed sand. I have a vivid memory of finding something in the sand and pulling it up in my hands, and it was lizard eggs, and they hatched in my hand just in that moment. I think they were escaping what they thought maybe I was a predator, but for me it was a wondrous experience to see them come alive and really surprising and delighting. What was religious life like growing up? My mother was a dedicated uh, Episcopalian. And so I was given the offices of instruction and uh, what's called confirmation. And I participated as an altar boy. I was perhaps the most active member in the family of six kids and uh, took it pretty seriously and enjoyed it and got some structure out of it. And did you take that with you as you went to uh, college and left home? Yeah, somewhere in high school, I began to drift away from the church. I wasn't getting answers to my questions. I wasn't getting even much sympathy for asking them. And so I began to read more widely. And when I did that, it was I was off and running with sort of doing my own independent investigation rather than taking what was presented to me within the instruction of the church and the ideas that were pre-prepared. Mm-hmm. I began to explore very widely and studied religious traditions from many, many, many different parts of the world and uh, parts of history. And what did you study in college? Uh, mathematics and psychology was my double major. So even though you liked growing up in the woods and experiencing the woods and nature, you didn't pursue it in college? I was looking for deeper answers really about spiritual matters. I settled on psychology in particular as something that interested me. I fell in love with the teachings of Carl Jung and uh, began to inquire, what is human nature? And then I also got more involved in the biology and evolution and, again, looking for what is human nature. And that began to hold my attention. Did that 
take you into work that was related to psychology and well no because i began to become suspicious that part of what the reason i wanted to get into psychology was to kind of sort of fix and sort out little issues i had and so i began to think it's better if i don't pursue it for the wrong reasons and so i ended up working in factories and becoming an inspector and then a computer programmer uh, almost before that was even a defined profession. This was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up enjoying that a great deal. Also, it paid pretty well. So I became a, a software development engineer and, and stayed with it for uh, my entire career. Uh, you said that you drifted away from your religious tradition and started investigating other traditions. Where did that track take you? Wow, uh, lots of places. But it really, it, it sort of developed that I was in a spiritual smorgasbord, in, in a sense. I would, I would literally visit with city yogas one week, and with Jews the next week, and with Christians the next week, and with Native American uh, healing circle the next week. And I would have conversations with each of them. Finally, I decided you know, what's important here is that I have a personal stake in this. And as this conversation is going on, I'm having great conversations. Maybe I'm not being consistent because I'm sort of picking what I like from here and from there and from there. I'm not really being challenged to be accountable from week to week to week. So I'm going to go looking for a community, not necessarily another teacher, because I thought I had a good insight into the way religions are, at their deepest nature, all saying the same thing. But I'm just going to look for a community. So I went on a conscious search for a religious community. Also, I realized in terms of my own life that I needed to have that for other reasons, to sort of continue my maturation. This is at the age of about 40 years old. So how did this trek in your spiritual path lead you to the Baha'i faith? In my questioning and looking for a community, I finally met a Baha'i. There weren't very many Baha'is in my life. And I finally met one and actually had a conversation with him. I said, well, I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about that. That's a religion. I've heard a little bit about it, but I've never talked to a Baha'i. So can you tell me where I can meet some Baha'is in my neighborhood? And can you give me some literature? And would you mind answering a few questions? And they just were bowled over by how focused my interest was. And I have to say, it was only a short while after that that I declared, I declared that I wanted to try to be a Baha'i. It came about because in part of my investigation, I started reading the writings of Baha'u'llah. And I was so compelled by the power of his writings, that I recognized that he was speaking for truths that were true of me that I barely knew how to how to articulate. And I said that out loud. I said, I was reading the long obligatory prayer with some friends, some close friends. And I said, it's so amazing that this is addressing parts of me that I didn't know that really existed, that I re-meet myself in this writing took a little while for the penny to drop down all the parts of the machinery. And the next day, I'm looking out the window at work, 
looking across a great distance and seeing the wind blow in the eucalyptus trees, a hawk circling overhead. I remember the moment. And what I realized was that these writings had such power, they're evidence that maybe this person really does come from God for us, for me, and that I just had to investigate and try to find out. I had to commit. So I came looking for a community and really ended up finding Baha'u'llah, and that is what compelled me. I was quite surprised by that turn of events, but I haven't regretted it. And how long ago was that? Uh, 20 years now. There's one aspect or one teaching of the Baha'i faith, from what reading your bio, has drawn your attention to do some work around, and that's this Baha'i teaching of the harmony of science and religion. Yes. From a very early age, I never understood people who, who presented either one as, as if it had to be in conflict with the other. I always sensed that there was deep music to be had in either of them, and deep truths to be had, and great joy and great beauty. I just knew that they had to be reconcilable. So I was puzzled when I ran, ran into that conflict theory, the, the belief that there's, there's a conflict. And so I began to think hard about it. And when I heard that the principle was a core principle, the two things about the Baha'i faith that really just pleased and surprised me, one is that science and, and religion, true science and true religion, have to be in harmony with each other, or there's something wrong. It's a very important principle that Abdu'l-Bahá, the, the son of Baha'u'lláh, said, uh, if your religion is in conflict with true science, it's just superstition. You should discard it. You'd be better off without it. And similarly, if science appears to uh, conflict with religion, then it's probably just materialism instead of true science which is an interesting distinction. As I have studied it, I've realized the philosophers hold by that and understand it. But it wasn't part of everyday conversation to hear that, that there's a difference between science and materialism. The other principle is the independent investigation of the truth. That that is in profoundly important for one's spiritual health and for making progress. And it also turns out to be the core idea of underlying science. So that teaching has got a very deep hold on my imagination from the very first moments when I started investigating the faith, and it has never stopped rewarding me. And in fact, I understand you're working on a book on this subject? I am. I'm several papers in a book, and... Uh, it's going to be a while yet before it's it's out there, but I've definitely been working on it and am actively writing and rewriting and rewriting. have been off and on for a year and a half. And I read that you have dedicated it to advancing the cause of the harmony of science and religion in practical terms. Yes, I think that it's something that I would like to engage the people I meet on the street, I'd like to engage everybody at some level with taking more ownership for helping to create that 
harmony. It's one thing to say, oh, in theory, it would be nice if they agreed, but it's either a pipe dream or it's just an ideal. I say, no, it's actually something that's going to take work to do. And it's something that's worth doing. And it's challenging. It's rewarding. So I'd like to try to fire up other people with taking and saying, you know what, that's worth that's worth working on. Let's go ahead. Let's do it together. Because I don't think it's something that a person can do. I think it's something we need to do collectively. It's pretty evident to me that the state of affairs that we're in right now, those two are not very much in harmony. There's many, many people go around uh, arguing that science means religion is obsolete or wrong. And there's other people that go around dissing science or thinking that in order to support their faith, they need to actually try to deny it. So I, I think that we're not yet at a very healthy is that measure of our civilization. And I'm thinking primarily in the United States, mm-hmm. but not entirely. All around the world, there are issues that we have a long way to show. We have a long way to go. Now, I had asked you if you would be able to share a couple of excerpts from your work. Sure. I'll give a little flavor. Okay, And great. this is something that, of course, is in flux. Every time I tell this story, it comes out a little different. I think a little better, but I have to keep retelling it until I get the music right. So this would be a passage that would be part of an introductory opening statement. There are four important misconceptions about science that I think many people carry around with them without even realizing it. I sincerely hope that in the course of reading this book, you have a good opportunity to examine whether you have secretly been holding these views and can make a a good move to go beyond them if you have. The first misconception is that science takes the mystery out of life or out of the things it studies. Far from it. For all that our understanding of the world has grown a thousandfold over the course of the last two centuries of scientific progress, we are left not with a lack of mystery, but with a deeper appreciation of the mysteries of creation. For one thing, We now think we have a good understanding of both the very large scale and the very small scale structure of the world and much of what lies in between. But in the last decade or so, we've come to think that all the stuff we know about represents only about 5% of the stuff that we think is there. We have indirect evidence that 95% of the universe is something that we now call dark matter or dark energy because we simply have no idea what it is. That has to be humbling for all the power of our physics that it's left in the dark about 95%. Further, out of that deep understanding of the physical structures of the cosmos and of matter has emerged an understanding that certain fundamental properties of things appear to be very, very precisely tuned indeed. By that I mean, if some of these properties were different from their actual values by even a very, very tiny amount, 
like in the 10th decimal place. The universe would be so changed that there would not be possible for us to be here to talk about it. This is called the anthropic cosmological principle in the modern philosophy of science. And it will probably be an issue that we're investigating for a very long time to come. It may even be possible that the universe is infinitely complex. That even in principle, we cannot ever exhaust that sense of mystery, that there will always be something more to discuss, to develop, to explore. It's a little harder for me to back that up with current day science, but I think the hints are there and the signs are there and I will discuss those. The second big misconception is that science is something only experts can and should do. There are important functions that only outsiders can perform. Reviewing findings, insisting on a perspective, valuation of the results, interpretation, and insisting that the insiders render the results in terms that we can understand. These are the only avenues whereby our public policy can become informed and deal intelligently with the results of science. It's also the only way in which we can grow in insight into what our place is and make use of the results of science for understanding ourselves. Third, science does not explain away the uniqueness of human beings. For all that we have come to understand that we are most closely related to chimpanzees, we are not at all able to understand scientifically just what it is that makes us unique. That goes a hundredfold more when it comes to understanding what a human individual is, what the self is, what personhood is about. Science excels at finding universal truths, and to do so, it must dissolve all references to particular persons into abstractions. Humanity, on the other hand, and religion, I will add, excels at elevating the individual, at trying to improve the individual, at strengthening him, and to understand a person as embedded in the story of their life. Much of what gives life its savor, therefore, falls permanently outside the bounds of science, or at least anything that we call science these days. And lastly and finally, Science does not disprove God or eliminate the need for religion. Far from it. Science, understood properly and respectfully engaged by religious thinkers, also teaches us more about God and how God creates, and therefore teaches us more about ourselves than we could in any other way. So when science properly understands its own limits, it refrains from leaping to the assertion that its methodological naturalism is not the same thing as saying 
what is natural is all that there is. In other words, that the material world is the only reality and that science is the only avenue to truth. And I think that one of the things I need to discuss here is that scientism is the mistake that does treat science as a religion. It does say that because science is so powerful, it is enough. It's everything that we need. And it's the only valid avenue to truth. But I think that truth is something we know runs deeper than that. And that we need three things. We need we need religion, we need science, and we need the arts. I can see that, those three balancing out society in a good way. Oh, yeah. yeah. If, you know, Baha'u'llah says you are created to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. That's one of his words about what it means to be human. And we, in personal dialogue with God in our own spiritual development, this is me speaking now, not Baha'u'llah, we also find our own best in helping to carry forward that ever-advancing civilization. And I think that the aesthetic sense of beauty is a core value and a core aspect of truth. When Baha'u'llah says something like, a kindly tongue is the lodestone of the hearts of men, one of the things he says about a kindly tongue is that it clotheth the words with meaning. In other words, the literal meaning of something is not really its truth value. If it is said in a kindly way, it's received, and that's part of the truth, is how it is received and the context in which it is said. So I think in a similar way, the whole aesthetic experience becomes an important part of how beauty is apprehended and how truth is apprehended. Taking too narrowly rational viewpoint robs truth of something essential. Yeah, I see these misconceptions that you outlined here targeted both to the scientist and to the religionist. Oh, definitely. Do you have another excerpt for us? I'll add one more thought on this before I read another bit more. Please. Because you point out to me that the scientist and the religionist both deserve a chance to improve the process of the harmony of science and religion. I think it is fair to say that religion has more to learn from science than the other way around. Religion is kind of like the older sibling, and it's had its way without having to be accountable to science for many, many, many centuries. This is true. Now, science has become so powerful, and engineering is its third child. (laughs) (laughs) Science and engineering have done so much to transform our world that I think that religion has more to learn about its own truths from science than the other way around. It's interesting because when Abdu'l-Bahá writes about that warning I gave about superstition and materialism, Mm -hmm. he gives the warning that religion not become superstition, 
he gives that 10 or 20 times for every once that he gives the warning about science becoming materialism. He saw, I think, that there really is a lot of ground for improving the way we think about religion. Yeah, I have to agree that both historically and even in the context today, at least in this country, there seems to be more of a denial of truth when it comes from science, more so than science denying the spiritual truth. You know, science is based on the material world, and it investigates the material world and uncovers the mysteries that God, God's creation. And as they uncover that, religionists need to be open to the fact that this is God's creation, and, and the scientist is, without bias, investigating God's creation. And we need to look at what the scientist reveals and see, as you've said, where the harmony is with yes. the teachings of religion, and do we really necessarily need to be taking what is spiritual truth and transferring that into material truth? Yeah. Let's take a good look, an open and honest look at what really is, and see the harmony that's there. Be open to it investigate with an open mind and use science as a tool to learn about God and about God's creation. A writer who talks a lot about this in one particular aspect. Okay. So people argue about evolution and some people believe religiously that they must defeat it or try to defeat it. They can't succeed. Uh, a writer who I admire a great deal called John F. Hout, H-A-U-G-H-T. He says, no, you can learn something here. You can learn something here that God is so powerful and so creative that God creates a universe that keeps on creating itself. In other words, evolution is a process by which novelty, new things keep arising and keep arising and keep arising in an endless process. The creativity of the biological world is just awesome. And he says, we used to think it's a reflection of God's power that, oh, look how beautifully this animal's designed in that one and this one and that one. Oh, what a wonderful creator spirit. Now we understand that species come and go and change over time. They're not really permanent designs. Instead, the idea of species and the transformation and the emergence of them, the arising and replacement of them, is itself a deeper process, which is constantly creating new things. So here's a case where a Catholic theologian, John Hout, has drilled in and said, look, we have a lesson to learn from science. We shouldn't fight, but let's take the hard medicine. Oh, we're not specially created. That belief, that religious belief, which sustained people in bygone centuries, has to be reinterpreted and understood. But there's, there's this extra bonus that comes out of it that says we now see in a deeper way how God's creativity is still active in the world. Now, of course, you still have to reinterpret Genesis on that basis. But then 
Genesis was perfect language for the time in which it was revealed. Now we have a much deeper understanding. Have you ever had an opportunity to read Guy Murchie's book, The Seven Mysteries of Life? I have. I have not spent enough time with it. I have it on my list of books to come back to look at in more detail. Yeah, I mean, I read it once, and I'm just starting to read it very slowly again. And what's so interesting about that book is its revealing of the mysteries of creation and how we can marvel at God's creation from a scientific viewpoint. Yes, we can use science as a way to magnify and extend our minds and extend our senses to see like a huge lens to see deeper and farther and longer into the nature of things. The power of the rational mind is very deep. Do you have another excerpt for us? Sure. This one is actually something that just I wrote yesterday. Fresh off the presses. Yeah, the in first draft, and this is the first draft, I write with a pen and paper, blank paper, unlined. Then I go back and write it in, in a word processor. There's less between me and the word, and the written word that way. Okay, so here we go. Science reveals many things to us and has transformed the world in which we live in many profound ways. There is a deep beauty to the picture of reality it shows us, both explicitly and implicitly. By means of collaborative observation, reasoning, and experimentation, and the use of instruments that extend and amplify our limited senses, we now know of a certainty that the scale of the universe is unimaginably large, that it has existed for a stupefyingly long time, but that long time is nonetheless not forever. Down at the bottom of things, at the very smallest scales, and over the very shortest of time intervals, science has revealed that things that seem to us to be smooth and continuous are in many ways grounded in discrete, packetized bundles that have very peculiar properties indeed. At the scale of living things, science has revealed to us that we are indeed connected and related to all other life both in the sense that the stuff of which we are made is constantly being exchanged between who we are today and the environment, and that in shared environment by all living things keeps recycling the same materials, and in the sense that we are related by descent. We have discovered that we are indeed related as distant cousins to all living things in the planet. It reminds me of one of the other fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith, and that is that humankind is one. Oh, yes, decidedly. And any time we come up with a thinking, oh, they, 
we got to watch out how we use the word they. In fact, we have to watch out how we use the word we. How inclusive is our we? We mm. are all related, for sure. A good friend of mine would always say, if the policeman in Ferguson really saw Mr. Brown as his brother, would he have shot him? Yes. That really affected me. Because I think we do use the word they too much to separate us from one another. Mm -hmm. In fairness, we kind of grew up, meaning humanity kind of grew up, in a world where that was easier to, that was a safer policy. But it's no longer so. The world is getting smaller. In no small part because science has knocked down the old barriers and because we've grown to fill the planet. Used to be we could think in terms of a tribe and the other tribes in our clan, and we would very rarely meet anybody else. And when we did, we had to sort of like negotiate how are we going to get along. But now we're truly approaching the stage where humanity is sort of forced, whether we like it or not, into a world community. It really is a change. And the sooner we become aware of that core principle, the sooner we can resolve the problems that are plaguing this world. Yes. And I want to empower people to take their part in that. And I think that it requires all of us to become a little bit of a little bit of a scientist. And I think it requires each of us to become responsible for our own religious thinking. The independent investigation of the truth is not optional. It's necessary. The reason you wrote this book, as I read earlier, was that you wanted a way to advance the cause for the harmony of science and religion in practical terms. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on what practical terms someone could promote this cause for the harmony of science and religion. One of the practical ways is engaging the question more openly. So we need to think critically and skeptically about what people say. Oh, well, scientists say X, Y, or Z. Well, ask questions. Do they really? Because most scientific findings are very narrow, and they're interpreted very broadly. You need to think skeptically and ask questions in order to do that. On the other hand, in practical terms, we need to honor what is validly proved. Something like climate change should never be a partisan issue. Science does work by consensus, and it can be wrong, and it will correct itself. But it has corrected itself over the last few decades. So how can something like that be a partisan issue? In order for public policy to have a healthier attitude towards making good use of scientific findings, needs to be informed by an electorate that is more open to science and more thinking critically about it and better informed. So those are three or four practical steps. If someone came up to you and said that science has disproved the existence of God, what would your response be? So tell me about this God that you think you've disproved. Let's define what you mean. And I think that the more questions I asked, 
it would come out that somebody had a very narrow definition of God. And he says, well, that's, I agree with you that that's disproved to the extent that I think that it would probably be sound science. But I say, but that's not God as I understand God. And it could be possible that here are these other factors to consider. And this is the nature of things that also is upheld scientifically and that science cannot move beyond these bounds in answering these questions. So that would be my response. Now, that's a hypothetical. Sure. I do think that there are many ideas about God that are sort of disproven or are rendered unnecessary. So, for instance, the God that, like, with his fingertips shapes the animals into who they are isn't needed because we have found a subtler view of how God does that create the process of evolution, create a world that sustains it, and then a, a balance of forces that lets it unfold. You're on the faculty of the Wilmette Institute. I was wondering if you could explain to folks what the Wilmette Institute is and what's your involvement. I'm a volunteer who helps to present courses on science and religion because that's my passion and interest and where I have done a lot of research. And when we run a course, and this is true for all the Wilmette Institute courses, so far as I know, a few, two or three faculty members will get together and lay out a course of study, which involves reading a few documents, looking at a few videos, perhaps doing a little independent research. What makes it unique is that it all involves something from a Baha'i perspective, that we also include the Baha'i writings as related to a topic that's set out in the larger world. So people come online and do the course attendance online. They read the materials and then we discuss it in exchanging messages in what's called a discussion group or a listserv. It's up to the individual to create their own learning plan and they may choose to do a presentation or some artwork or write a paper out of expressing what they learn in the course. And the courses are usually four to five or eight or ten weeks long. They're on a range of subjects, a wide range of subjects. Well, Roger, I want to thank you for... Well, before I close, is there any last thoughts you want to convey before we close? A sense of humility is precious in both science and in religion. A sense of wonder also is. Well, thank you so much, Roger, for sharing your story and your work with us. Oh, I'm very delighted. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Roger Naiman, a Baha'i who has had a lifelong interest in the fundamental harmony of science and religion and a focused desire to transcend the worldly conflicts that obscure it. He is currently working on a book dedicated to advancing that cause in practical terms. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
I'm ashamed of mankind But I walk a thin line So I slip If something's in the way Yeah, I'm known to trip It's more than I can take All eyes on me And it's more than I can fake But at the end of the day Man, all that I can say is My prayers to the most great When I'm down for the count In it too deep When I live day to day Start to lose sleep When I don't go to class When I don't call fam back How long can I do this? How long will I last? I don't know, God, I don't know If I am even worthy of your grace anymore I'm waiting for a sign But everything is the sign In reality, the world is already mine I feel it in my veins, the fire When I cry out his name Oh my God, make my prayer 
fire to burn away all my veils. Make of my prayer a fire, a fire. Kindling my pains a fire, a fire. My God, my adored one, my King, my desire. I know that God gave each a purpose But we all gotta search way beneath the surface To find it, like trying to unearth a diamond That always appears with the most perfect timing So I start reading to find meaning And I see there is still something I am not seeing In between the lines, in my spirit, in the music In the very air that I'm breathing It's the reason I feel forced to write I recognize it inside me, that source of light Showing me that there is so much more to life Arming me with the fire because I got wars to fight I think about the breakers of the dawn And how they stood firm when the guns were drawn On the front lines, far from pawns Kings in their own right They're the ones who I call upon Whenever I lose faith I read the story of my name and realize it's never too late to believe And so shall my powers be I believed and he made a man out of me I feel it in my veins, the fire when I cry out his name, oh my God, make my prayer a fire to burn away all my veils. Make of my prayer a fire, a fire, kindling my veins, a fire, a fire. My God, my adored one, my king, my desire. Now when the swords flash, go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. Now when the swords flash, go forward. When the shafts fly, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on. When the swords flash, go full, go full. When the shafts fly, press on, press on.
And he yearns every day to take his flight My presence will be with you always I have labored day and night I must leave them take my flight And no strength
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.